Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we have Lauren. Hello. Monique. Hi. And Justin. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about space and a lot of activities that have been happening in space, including the SpaceX Dragon resupply mission, the effects of long-term space travel on the brain, a new neighbour for the sun, who's very, very cool, and the extremely, extremely large telescope, which is a fantastic new optical telescope being built. Okay, so we're gonna, this week's City of Science is the Charo Amazones mountain range in Chile near Santiago. And the reason why we're talking about this is that this mountain range is going to be home to the EELT, otherwise known as the European Extremely Large Telescope in the astronomer's creative tradition of naming. So this week we'll be looking at that as one of our news stories, and that's why the Cerro Amazones mountain range, which is a very, very tall mountain range on the Chilean coast near Santiago, is our city of science. See, Justin, I've always dreamed of being a pirate. Really? A pirate? A science pirate? A space pirate. Oh, even better. So what would I be doing was I'd be going along in my spaceship and I'd pull out my space telescope, kind of like you know how Jack Sparrow used to use those glass ones, and sighting amazing planets off the starboard bow. That's that's a really, really good dream. Unfortunately, is such a thing really possible? Do we really have space telescopes that big? Well, the Chero and Anazomes, they're actually looking at building a giant, massive glass telescope so that we can view alien life and other planets more clearly. Well, this is really cool because just as a brief history of space telescopes, most of the telescopes we originally built in the, mid- in the Middle Ages were glass optical telescopes. That's what Galileo used to discover Jupiter and its fantastic moons. But most modern astronomy is done with radio telescopes, which use radio waves or other waves to travel really long distances and get detailed maps and pictures of the universe. And that's what we're building in Australia and South Africa with the Square Kilometre Array, which we've talked about several times on the show. But that's a massive listening post called a radio telescope. So what's different for this, this new telescope that they're building in uh, Cerro Amazonas? Well, the difference is this one is being built with a whole bunch of lenses, so kind of like the actual telescopes, we use little handheld ones. Um, And some of the problems as to why we couldn't make these before was finding the right environment to have them in. So, for example, if you're building glass telescopes on at places that are at, for example, sea level, you're going to end up with a lot of condensation and water molecules in the air that is going to stop you from properly being able to see. And that's why we built the Hubble Space Telescope in space, so it was away from all this atmospheric interference, and even then it was you know, very difficult to maintain. So how are they getting around some of these issues? The main reason why they're building it in um, the Cerro Amazonas is because it's a very arid, dry environment, and it's actually on the top of a mountain. So what they're doing is they're cutting, they're actually kind of cutting off the top of the mountain so they can build this extremely large telescope, and it's so dry and arid up there that they're not going to have this issue of water molecules that they do if they had it at sea level. Right, so they basically, they can't put one in space because that's a bit difficult. So they're going to put one as close to space as they can and uh, and then basically hope that, uh, you know, the dry environment up there will keep everything clear and safe and uh, not uh, interfering with the lens. That's a really clever solution to it. What else are they doing at this um, ast- extremely large telescope to get around a lot of other problems that these telescopes face? 
we're going to interrupt this uh, recording of the podcast because a large Chewbacca and Princess Amidala just came and delivered us flyers for a May the 4th Be With You marathon. Oh, we're not joking. This literally happened whilst we were recording. Um, <laughs> continuing on after that interesting interlude, what's happening at this, um, uh, at this telescope? So now we have a very large telescope in comparison to the extremely large telescope, which is four optical telescopes who are, that are placed nearby and they actually discovered uh, the black hole and the effects of the black hole uh, that exists at the centre of our galaxy. Yeah, so they, they, the engineers who are building the extremely large telescope, they practised first, right? They built a series of small ones called the Very Large Telescope, stuck together. Which I think, you know, if you're going to go with a naming system like extremely large, very large, it makes sense to, like, graduate up in, it, up in like, steps. Does that mean we get to go up another step once we create one even bigger than that, like the monumentally large telescope? I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't know where you go after extremely. I mean, so the, so the giga-large giga telescope may be the one that comes after it, but I really have no... Maybe the Gogol complex. That, that's all I can think of. Um, but it's really interesting. So they built all these telescopes nearby to each other, all at the tops of mountains, where they decapitate the poor mountain and place them all together. And it's really interesting to think about how we have to build these telescopes at the top of these mountains in order to see stuff to because otherwise you have to put them in space like the Hubble and the Hubble was a really beautiful telescope and gave us some fantastic imagery because it was outside the Earth's atmosphere but it suffered from the difficulty of being in space so whenever you wanted to repair it it was much more expensive and difficult than you could possibly imagine so there's trade-offs involved one of the other really interesting parts about these telescopes is unlike radio telescopes which can only tell you like the shapes and the colors and everything of the planets which which do work really nicely and they do look nice in the results that they produce but it's not quite the same as physically getting to look at a planet or look at life on another planet with a extremely large telescope the aim is to actually have something big enough that you can see life on a planet that we've discovered so there are a lot of telescopes that are working right now to pick up these um, extrasolar bodies planets around other stars and it's hoped that the extremely large telescope can actually look at surface of one of these planets that we've discovered outside our solar system. And maybe one day we'll be able to pick up some alien life? Well that's right, I mean with, with a radio telescope we can only hope to see the aliens if they're producing electromagnetic current or radio interference. With an extremely large telescope we can physically see them which would be difficult but not impossible. So it's a hope out there for you alien hunters if you want to start playing around with the extremely large telescope. It's scheduled for completion in a few years and it'll provide you one of the best terrestrial ways of glimpsing into the outer space. aka ice cold. Can you guess what new thing we've found that is actually ice cold? Uh, a comet. No. A planet. No. A giant planet made of diamonds. I wish. An evening with Mikhail Dr. Michio Kaku. Which is pretty cool, but probably not what you're after. Unfortunately not. W what is it then? What we've actually found is a brown dwarf, which is, which is actually as cold as the Earth's North Pole. So w what is a brown dwarf? So it's basically just a small star that burns really cold. So like our sun, just smaller and really cool. Yeah. And I think from memory, this, brown dwarfs can often be as cold, the surface of them, like cold like the North Pole. So you can walk across them. If you, could, if you landed on one, you could walk along one. Which, what is actually really interesting about this one is in the past we've found brown dwarfs and of course, you know, they're a lot colder than most stars that you expect 
uh, slowly imploding ball of gases. These ones have actually been found to be the coldest before this has actually been um, room temperature. So this is the coldest brown star we've found. So this is, so this, before we just found like ones that were mildly warm, 30 degrees, 40 degrees to land on, this one is like actually ice almost, which is amazing to think of that as sun, right? So something that's undergoing nuclear fission infusion to create light and heat and energy, which is what a star does, um, is actually that cold, which is, you know, really cold fusion going on. So they discovered this using uh, a telescope called WISE. Which is a pretty smart name for a telescope, guys. Yeah. Much better smart. than extremely large. <laughs> uh, which uses infrared radiation to find things in outer space. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to pick a, a brown dwarf out from the sky because it doesn't appear very bright. It doesn't shine really brightly. No. So you have to use infrared to actually find it. So how big is this brown dwarf that they found using WISE? They actually think it's, it's been estimated to be three to ten times the mass of Jupiter. Which is the largest planet in our solar system, so that's pretty big. Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually interesting to think that, you know, Jupiter in other circumstances could have condensed into a brown dwarf star, which would have been really interesting as part of, you know, our development of our solar system. But that's not what happened for us, but it did happen up for the, for the small planet discovered by, small brown dwarf discovered by Wise. So the brown dwarf that we found is 7.2 light years away. Which is actually really, really close when you think about it. Like our closest neighbouring stars are probably about six. Yeah, about six, six light years away. The Centauri system, and this is only seven point two. So this is feasible for us to visit so with spacecraft. Yeah, we could travel there and land on this this frozen star and just walk around, which I find amazing because normally we find like this. There's the giant diamond planet, which is like size of Jupiter but made out of diamonds. That's like fifty light years away, and then there's like the, the stars like at Sirius, which are. 50, 100,000 times bigger than our sun, you know, but we can't actually visit them because they're so far away. But this one, this is close. We could get there. We could walk on the surface of, the, of a star. I just find that amazing. And really hot and also cold at the same time. So this just goes to show you what you can do using infrared and not optical telescopes and the differences between what each of those telescopes can be used for. Oh, and that's, that's one of the really amazing parts of space travel. We'd go to travel to all these unknowns and visit them and step out of them. But it's actually really challenging to think about the difficulties that you encounter when traveling through space. And one of the biggest things that we know about, which is muscular degeneration, um, which is what happens to astronauts when they've been up, for example, on the International Space Station for too long, um, their muscles atrophy because they don't use them because of zero gravity. Mm -hmm. And that means when they get back to Earth, their bones, they can't basically stand up. They have to be carried out and they have to go and take months of physical therapy to actually build up their body back to the point where they can function in gravity. I think I heard there was something like you, there's only a certain amount of times you can go into space though because it lowers bone density. That's right. There is a limit on actually how much you can do that as well because each time that you do that the muscles get weaker and the bones get weaker so both of these things together mean that when you come back to earth and each and go back, then go back to space again you're coming from an even weaker starting point so it's a bit like uh reusing the same same rubber band over and over again eventually they, they just get some um, broken out okay so we talked about like physical changes that can happen from going um up into space are there any like mental ones as well or is it just on whether i can pick up a doorbell yeah <laughs> i pick up a doorbell yeah doorbell. Uh, so there are often a lot of challenges with that and astronauts aside from feeling a sense of isolation 
loneliness, stress, pressure, nausea, muscular atrophy. They also have to spend a lot of their time working out just to maintain it. Like they spend more time at the gym than any gym fitness freak here does on, on Earth just, just to not be completely terrible when they get back to Earth. But some scientists have been looking at the damage that it does to the brain and what actually happens to the brain's development when it's left in space too long. So scientists have done some experiments on rats and by exposing them to the same sort of radiation that astronauts face when they're going into deep space travel, they found that they can the radiation actually impairs their cognitive and um, it actually impairs their cognitive abilities and their attention-related deficits. Yeah, so this, this study was done at um, John Hopkins University School of Medicine by Robert D. Hines. And he was looking at basically the behavioural impacts on the, and the biology of these rats by being in space so long. And when space travel, this is not to do with zero gravity, this is to do with the radiation you're exposed to when you're travelling between stars. Because Earth protects us from a lot of radiation. Um, not just stuff we cause, but from intergalactic radiation from this, from stars um, by having this massive magnetic shield around us, which keeps us safe. But when you leave the Earth's atmosphere and you leave the solar system, you're no longer protected by the sun's and Earth's magnetic fields, so you're exposed to all kinds of weird radiation. And so this is what they simulated on this on these deep space on these deep space experiments for these rats. And it's really interesting that they had not just um, cognitive functions being impaired, which is your ability to think and make decisions, but also your um, attention-related deficits. So, so then, how did they test this? So. In one test, an astronaut sees a blank screen on a handheld device and taps the screen whenever an LED counter lights up. So the normal reaction time is less than 300 milliseconds. And rats were experimented in a similar way. So they were first trained for the tests, so trained how to tap a screen. Response to light, which is a pretty good trick to teach rats. Yeah, and then after being exposed to varying levels of radiation that astro astronauts would normally receive during long-duration missions. Uh, the rats were then given the same tests after, after exposure to the radiation. They actually did some controls on them as well, so some rats weren't, weren't exposed to radiation. And they also actually then tested them every day for 250 days, so like the same length of time as, say, a trip to Mars. So, so then how long can you be in space before you start seeing these effects? Well, the... Um, the rats showed evidence of impairment um, at about 50 to 60 days after exposure. And that typical trip to Mars is about 90 days on a good run. So that's, that's well within that kind of window. So it means that if we wanted to send rats or humans to Mars, we would actually have to undertake some preventative dampening, shielding with lead or electromagnetic fields to keep us safe. So did we see these effects on all the rats? Not quite. This only happened to about 40 to 45% of the rats that were tested. So that's really interesting. So it's not a clear necessarily um, that maybe some types of rain, rats' brains are more developed to avoid or have less impact of the radiation than the others. Um, and might be also if we have memory training devices, it might also keep the brains active at that point. But it does definitely show the impact radiation, can, prolonged exposure to radiation can have on the brain. And the challenges that we will face if we want to go visit some cool brown dwarfs or even just a trip to Mars. Okay, so that's if we want to go out into space and like go on long, deep space trips. We, there's, some, there's different kinds of radiation we have here on Earth, though. Can these results help us with any of that? So it's not just humans in space who are exposed to potentially large amounts of radiation. If you go in and have a CAT scan or an MRI, you're exposed to large amounts of radiation, let alone if you undergo any sort of chemotherapy. So these are actual real risks for humans undergoing cancer treatment. 
And what and it's so research we do for space trips and space travel also has real world applications for medical practice. So I hope you guys all had a nice Easter. I actually know of a nice new Easter legend in the making. Alright, hit me, what is it? So the International Space Station actually received a nice little Easter gift this year. They received an Easter care package from a dragon a in space. A space dragon? A space this is incredible. So what was actually going on here? So the SpaceX company's cargo ship, which is called Dragon. Which is a great name. Yeah, it's a pretty great name. Spent two days chasing the ISS and the astronauts eventually used a robot arm to capture the capsule. So that's actually, it's really funny because like the SpaceX is a private company, right? So it's not NASA, it's not yeah. the European Space Agency, it's not Russia or China. These are a privately funded company. And because NASA doesn't have a space shuttle anymore, someone needs to come and feed the astronauts on the International Space Station. So they're using SpaceX, like Dragon. Uh, uh, it's basically a robot probe that was launched from Cape Canaveral, went up into space, kind of got close enough, but they obviously couldn't get the docking working just right on its own. So they, they just grabbed it with a robot arm. I just love everything about this story is amazing. Especially since the company was called SpaceX. It just has that level of mystery. Well, that's right. And, and the guy who grabbed it was a Japanese astronaut, was the one who actually grabbed it with a robotic arm. So they've got mecha aspects functioning in here. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is the perfect space robot news story, really. Okay, so what did the dragon actually contain? So the dragon contained tons of food spacewalking gear and experiments including like mating fruit flies and legs for the space station's resident robot oh man that's even better like they're sending robot parts up inside another robot to then assemble in space to make more robots this is it was more than an easter legend this is an East, easter miracle really a miracle of robot creation science there's just so many crossovers here it's great so there was even a more of an even more high stakes game going on here. So they had to actually replace an onboard computer that uh, that had died, and they actually needed to their backup. Not only the main system had failed, but their backup failed on April 11. So they really needed to get this extra part up there to actually you know help the space station stay functioning and alive. And there's a fantastic quote from Mission Control about the, about this mission. Radio back to NASA's Mission Control in Houston. They said, "Great work catching the dragon." <laughs> and and um, well, actually, the dragon itself remained attached until mid-May, where it will then be filled with more site samples and sent back to Earth. And it really shows what the great work being done um, by private space corporations. Um, this is the fourth delivery that they've made to the International Space Station, which is which is fantastic. And this story gets even more interesting because one of the reasons why SpaceX and other private companies are getting involved in the space challenge is because NASA doesn't have the funding anymore and NASA doesn't have the space shuttle to do all these launches. And one of the great things about the space shuttle that made it much more better and more economic than Russia's missions was that it was reusable. The space shuttle was reusable, the main boosters were reusable, the main fuel tank was reusable, um, which meant that it was cheap and economic to relaunch over and over again, not building a massive rocket, only to then destroy it on, you know, land on on launch. So SpaceX is actually experimenting with reusable rocketry. So what's happening there, Laura? So when the Dragon was actually launched, it was launched on top of a Falcon 9 rocket. And what SpaceX is going to be doing is they're going to be using that Falcon 9 rocket again to launch other things up into space. So they're really working on making the Falcon 9 from a single-use rocket, single-use launch vehicle, into a multiple-use relaunchable vehicle. And they're going to do their first test in 2015 of it. 
So they've, they've tested with the boost stage on April 18, which sort of did similar reusable aspects, but they're hoping to do a fully reusable rocket by around 2050, which would mean that SpaceX would actually be at a similar point to NASA, but privately funded and privately profitable, which is a great stage for private space enterprise, and one step closer to mining space and space travel. Soon, my dreams. Soon, my dreams will come true. So that just goes to show the power of robotic robot deliveries in space with the mystical space dragon guys so pay attention next year i hope you also celebrate this this period by celebrating the the successful launch of the spacex dragon this has been the young scientists of australia's podcast lagrange point this week we talked about all the fantastic happenings in space including the discovery of a really cool brown dwarf spacex dragon and an extremely large telescope out there staring into space our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.